May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. I have been, for the last several weeks, um, as I have, in fact, the last several years, been telling you about St. Paul's letters and how many of his letters were written to address specific problems that were going on in specific churches. Uh, There were churches that were known to him, people that he knew in the same way that I know you and you know me, and they they were congregations who met, not totally unlike what we do on a weekly basis here. And Paul knew them. And he would leave and he would get reports about these churches, the churches that he had himself had been uh, involved in in beginning. And he would write to these churches to address issues that were going on, as you well might expect. In in 1 Corinthians, for instance, I count no less than 11 specific problems that he, he writes to address. Look, there's this going on, and I hear this, and I've heard this, and so on down the line. He does a similar thing in 2 Corinthians, although in 2 Corinthians he's really hammering home his original point, which is, listen, you have to listen to me because I'm an apostle called by God to to serve you. And so 2 Corinthians is a little less on the specificity about problems, but but really in the issue of, of his authority. I could go through Paul's other letters and show you how he writes to encourage and admonish and so on, but mostly to correct he, he typically starts out like this. There's a, a big theological uh, issue. I, I want you to understand who God is and how God has been at work in the world. And because of this, stop doing this and that and the other. And he goes through um, Romans, one big example. There's a big dispute between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Imagine this over what sort of foods they can eat. And Paul ends up spending 13 chapters getting to the point, laying out this big argument and saying then, because of these things. Let me tell you how you ought to act. Um, in a couple of his letters, though, Colossians and Ephesians, Ephesians, which we have before us today, and to some degree Philippians, he moves away from his, his standard practice. Instead of writing to address specific problems, Paul writes out of a different kind of emphasis, out of a different kind of source. He writes in order to set the church on a course for the time in which he will no longer be with them. Paul writes Ephesians and Colossians, Philippians and Philemon from a Roman prison. And we know, and I think Paul knows, if you read through these letters carefully, that he is not going to see the other side. He keeps trying to hope, you know, I think the Lord's going to bring me through this. I think we're going to, we're going to and then he'll pull back and say, and yet, I probably not. Um... And and so he knows that the end is near, and so he writes these letters with a different sort of emphasis. He writes to set them on a course. As such, the theology is much more complex. The the ideas behind what he wants to say much more convoluted. Um, He sees more forests than trees, as it were. And so Ephesians, if you have your bulletin handy, I'd like you to just kind of look at this with me. This is a letter, okay? Go back to this before I said, this is a letter. This is somebody's personal mail that they wrote. And think of it as an ancient email. Subtract the E and you get what it is. It's mail, right? It's somebody's mail that they sent. Uh, Paul sends it to a church. And what you don't have is the beginning, the first two verses. In the ancient Greco-Roman world, if you were to write a letter, you would write it with your first name. Your very first thing would be your name. Derek, Rich, Sally, Joe, Chloe, whoever. You know, whoever's writing the letter starts off with their name right at the beginning. 
so that the recipient knows who wrote it. It, I don't know how it happened that in English grammar that we waited until to put it at the very end. So you know what happens if you get a big letter, don't you? You have to flip it over to the back to see who it was that wrote it. Well, in the ancient Greco-Roman world, you start right off with it. Paul. And so in chapter 1, verse 1 of Ephesians, guess what the first word is? Paul. <laughs> Paul. And then he goes on, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And then what you would do in the next part is you would write the addressee. To the saints, to the church at Ephesus, and the faithful who are called in Christ Jesus. So that when someone picked up the letter, they would say, oh, wow, look, it's from Paul. And, oh, joy, it's to us. You know, he wrote it to the church. Or if it was read in the church, this is the way it would go. The next thing, so you have addressee, or you have, excuse me, author, you have addressee. And the very next thing that happens in all ancient Greco-Roman letters is that the author would praise his God. Now, there are many gods, not just Christian God. I'm talking about all the pagans, everybody who would write. There's an ancient letter we have from this fellow called Appion, who was an Egyptian who joined the Roman army, was put on a ship, sailed off to Italy, went through a terrible storm, but he made it. We still have it. It goes like this. Appion. <laughs> oh, who wrote it? Appion. To his father, Lord Epimachus. Many good wishes. First of all, I hope that you're in good health and that things are going well for you and my sister and her daughter and my brother. I thank the Lord Seraphus for saving me right off when I was in danger at sea. And on and on. This is the way you wrote letters. Well, you, you say, well, that's, that's lovely. I'm glad to know that. But what, what does this mean? Okay, well, look at the, the very first verse that you have. You don't have, the, you don't have the author. You don't have Paul. You don't have the addressees in front of you. But what you have is the beginning where Paul begins to praise his God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop at the end of that what looks like a complete sentence, because it is not a complete sentence. Um, this, uh, verses 3 to 14 are one sentence in the original Greek. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was an undergrad student, I wrote these really long, convoluted sentences. Um, they, were, they would go on and on with all kinds of subordinate clauses. And I remember my English prof would be like, Joe, this is terrible. You've got to, I need a period. I need a semicolon. Get me something in here to break this up. And I would say, but St. Paul does it. And she says, you are neither saint nor Paul. So you write it the way you're supposed to. Um, but he does. This is one really long sentence. It's complicated, it's convoluted, it's theologically complex. And it's my job in the next few minutes to help you understand it and to keep your unruly minds from wandering off to brunch or whether or not you set the DVR to, to tape the soccer match or whatever else that you might be doing. See, here's the big problem. I think that most people for the last 500 years, most people in, in at least the Protestant world, or the Anglo-Protestant world, have misread this passage. So for 500 years, we've had it wrong. And today, you get to see it corrected. <laughs> yeah, isn't that great? What a, mega, a major task to undergo. But I want to do something at the outset that I don't do, is I'm going to tell you my thesis. And I'm saying at the outset that Paul is not talking about the lives of individual Christians. He is praising God for revealing the big plan of salvation. This is the point that Paul was saying. He wants to praise God for the whole thing. He, he thinks about what God has done, this magnificent plan of salvation, and he praises him for the whole thing. 
Here is the issue. You've got to look at the pronouns. The pronouns are so very important. Look again at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Who's the we in us? Well, you would say Paul and the Ephesian Christians, and by extension, you and I. God has indeed blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and so on. But Paul, in verse 4, employs a little word at the very beginning. Right after this, he goes into a clause. And this little clause, I'm I'm sorry, I know this is technical. I've been praying about this all morning because I know I'm going to lose you here and I'm not going to. If I have to, I'll jump up on top of the pulpit. I've been known to do such things. He uses this little word, kathos, in Greek, just as. And I think it's his parenthetic remark. It's, this is where he's breaking off from verse 4 all the way through verse 12. The us changes. It's no longer Paul and the Ephesian Christians, by extension you and I. It's another us. It's a different us. Now here's the problem. Look what it says in verse 4. Even as he, that is God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world... That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for the adoption to himself as sons. Through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Who is the us? Now this is the question. If the us is the same us as in the verse 3. Then what this text is saying and what the reformers wanted to say. Was that God in God's sovereign wisdom. Looked down through time. Plucked people out, said these people are going to be believers, and by virtue of default, these are not. These people are going to hell, these or heaven, and these people are going to hell. This is this is what the reformer said. This is what Calvin says. This is to some degree what Luther said. He he hedged quite a bit, but um, this is this is what their their theology was sort of based on. Now this is a complicated and difficult issue to deal with. Our own articles of religion, the the, the Church of England. Article 17, for curious and carnal persons, lacking the spirit of Christ, to have continually before their eyes the sentence of God's predestination is the most dangerous downfall, the, the article says, whereby the devil doth thrust into them either desperation or into wretchedness of most unclean living, no less perilous than desperation. In other words, the, the article says, you know, we shouldn't even really talk about this because there's no good thing that comes out of it. I don't think that's what Paul's talking about. I don't think it's what he's talking about at all. I think he's talking about Israel and the Gentiles. He's talking about God's big plan of salvation that begins with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is Israel. Abraham was indeed selected, elected, chosen. Not so that Abraham could be saved and all the rest of the world die, but Abraham was chosen so that the entire rest of the world might not die. He was chosen to bring the world the gift of of God's grace, the gift of salvation. And it's not just in Joe's head that this is happening, okay? Because I want you to, this is going to be, just bear with me a second. This is going to be a little bit, okay? And if my eyes worked better, it would be much much easier. I'm going to read through this, and I want you to look with me, and I want you to pay attention to the pronouns, okay? Starting at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, I'm saying that there's a little colon here, even as, okay? We're, we're going to 
have a little parenthetic remark. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, here's our word again, according to the purpose of him who works all things to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope, who were the first to hope? Israel. Who were the first to hope? We, Israel, the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now look at this. Here's where they've been missing this for 500 years. A tiny little Greek pronoun. In him you also. You see that? We, 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 us, 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 we, us, we, us, we, us, our. You. It's a big switch. It's a big turn. Paul is saying that what God is doing he has done through Israel, and now he's doing for you, you Gentiles. And it's not just here. If you flipped over a page, you don't have a page to flip over, but if you did, you could flip over to chapter 2, and here's what you'd, you'd hear him say. Therefore, remember at one time, you Gentiles, this is 2.11 if you want to look at it later, you Gentiles in the flesh, he skips over to verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the, new co the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now Christ Jesus, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near. It's not about God selecting individuals to the detriment of others. It's com that's completely upside down. It's about God selecting Abraham for the sake of the world. This is the way he works out his plan of salvation, and it comes through the person of Jesus. So, just a couple quick points. What does it mean? Um, what is Paul praising God for? Well, I think he's praising God. Look at verse 13. In him you also, this is the way at the end, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. There's power in the gospel. The gospel proclamation. The gospel is not apologetics. It's not defending the faith. There's a place for that. I'm not saying there's not. The gospel is not apologetics. The gospel is a simple declaration that God set forth a plan in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through the people of Israel that, that Jesus became the Israel of God. And in him we have hope and salvation. That's the gospel. Proclaiming that is not saying, do you want to believe in it? Can I show you five ways in which you should do that? None of that. It's simply the proclamation stating it. That there is power in the gospel. Paul says the Ephesian believers heard this and they believed. And it transformed them. They heard it, they believed, it transformed them. It is simply declaring the story. Second of all, that faith in Christ brings with it the Holy Spirit. The person of the Holy Spirit. 
Those who believe and are baptized and join part of, of the Christian community receive the Holy Spirit. Not a part of the Holy Spirit. Not a little bit. You receive the Holy Spirit. Yes, there's growth in grace. There's understanding what the Holy Spirit can do in you. There's a, an immense uh, uh, opportunity in the future to grow more and more, to experience more and more of that power. But the Holy Spirit comes when we come to faith in Christ. We receive the Holy Spirit. We receive the very person of God. And third, that this reception of the Holy Spirit is itself an earnest payment of heaven. Of the future. If I told you I was going to buy something from you, I don't know. You were selling something. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's a car or a house or a motorcycle or a boat or something like that. And I said, I want to buy that from you. And you said, well, you know, I, I like you, Joe, and I trust you and all. But um, how about a little, um, little proof that you're going to buy it, right? And I say he gave you, you know, $100. That's a deposit. If I don't buy the boat, you keep my $100. But let's suppose that you said, I want to sell you this, and I gave you you know, 70% of it. <laughs> well, then you know that I'm going to give it to you, right? This is earnest. This is real, you know, money towards the end. This is the language that, that, that Paul used, our opponent. This is, a, a, the, the Holy Spirit is, is the same thing. It's the identical reality that we will know God on this side of eternity in the same way, not as full as, not as much as, but in the same way as we'll know him in eternity. The Holy Spirit is earnest deposit upon eternity. Okay, so I know this is complicated and convoluted. And, convolu and you might be saying, I want to go to lunch. We've got to talk about this. You're paying. Um, okay, so <laughs> what does this mean to us? Well, it means this, that God's work of salvation is about rescuing the whole creation. I don't even think it limited the people. I think God is interested in saving all of his created work, that he loves it all, all of creation. I know he loves my dog, so I know that he loves all of creation, that this is, this is bigger than just humans, but it includes all of humanity. I think the reformers got this wrong. I, I think they got so much right, but they got this wrong. And to you and me, it means this, that people aren't disposable. Human beings are not disposable. They are redeemable. They are able to be transformed and changed. You know how I know? Because I have been transformed and changed. I am not a completed project. And don't judge God's work by, uh, by Joe Boisel by any stretch of the imagination. He can do so much better. But you can imagine what he's done in my life. Because you know what he's done in yours. People are redeemable. That rude woman who makes snarky remarks at work, she's redeemable. That grouchy old dude who lives across the street and calls the police every time you turn your music on, he's redeemable. These people are redeemable. Don't get, who have you given up on? Don't give up on them. Second thing, you're a child of God. If you believe and are baptized and you are, are part of the, the, this community, the church, you are a child of God and you are an heir to his fortune. You have access to all of it. And I don't mean money to make yourself comfortable. I mean all the power of heaven to move heaven and earth if it would be to, to help in, in kingdom building. Third, you have the Holy Spirit. 
the Holy Spirit. You have God's real presence. Remember the stories of ancient Israel. What did God promise Israel? I will be in the midst of my people. And so they said, oh, fantastic. Let's build this tent and we'll put an altar in there. And this is where you'll live, right here. And we'll travel it around with us everywhere. And eventually they said, well, let's make it in one city in an unmovable building, Jerusalem. Now you live here. God has a new address, you know, 127 Temple Street. Um, you know, and he, this is where you live. God lives in the presence of his people. The Holy Spirit is among us every bit as much right now as in that temple in Jerusalem. That no longer exists, by the way. <laughs> he is here and present. We are the temple of God. Um, I, I remember this story I heard years ago about this young prince who was caught up in a coup d'etat. And uh, his father was killed and he was thrown in prison. And um, was in prison for many, many years and was given only one book to read, the Bible. And he was in prison and assumed that he was going to be killed as well, but they never killed him. They kept him alive and alive for long. And eventually it was another coup in which put him back in power. He was back as, as nobility. And, and someone asked him, you know, in all those years of captivity and you had only the Bible, did it give you hope and encouragement? I mean, was it a source of strength for you? And the prince said, you know, not really. All I really got out of it was there are 66 books and about 1,189 chapters. There were 31,173 verses. And the center verse is Psalm 103, 1 and 2. Besides that, uh, it used to call 600 shekels for an Egyptian chariot. Trivia. We can live around Christians. Or we can live as Christians. We can live around the presence of God or we can live in the presence of God. In Christ, 11 times, verses 3 to 14. In Him, in Christ. We can know a lot about God or we can know God personally in a daily existence. Not, this whole section is not about knowing the story. It's about living the story. That's why Paul cannot stop praising God for it. This is his story. And I hope we find ourselves in this story as well. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.